Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We want to turn to God's Word this morning before we come to the Lord's table together. And we are turning this morning to the Gospel of Mark. And we are once again in Mark chapter 6. Now last week, Mark took a bit of a detour in his narrative to go back and review what had happened to John the Baptist and how he had died at the hands of Herod, that king so miserably tossed and driven by his fear of man and and what people would think of him. But today we're returning to the narrative of Jesus' life and ministry. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, the last thing that Jesus had done was send his disciples out in pairs to proclaim the kingdom of God and call people to repentance and to heal and cast out demons in his name. And the disciples had done that and now they have returned and they've gathered together with Jesus to report what happened and to debrief with him. And that's where we're picking up the story with Mark chapter 6, verse 30. So if you would follow along, let's read Mark 6, verses 30 to 44. This is God's word. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Father, we thank you for this story, so well known, and yet a story you have given us. Would you work in us by your spirit through your word this morning, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I know that I have told some of you the story of my spring break trip in 2003. I was on a trip to Washington, D.C. with several dozen of my fellow Hillsdale College students, and we were having dinner at Uno Pizzeria. 
And we were told that as part of the trip, we each had $15 to spend on dinner. Now, this is 2003. This is back in those days when $15 could buy you more than a McDonald's cheeseburger. But even then, $15 wouldn't go very far at a sit-down restaurant in Washington, D.C., especially not for a bunch of 19-year-old guys who'd been hiking the subways and the museums all day. So as we thought about it, there's four of us at the table, there's few things more discouraging than being ravishingly hungry, eating dinner, and still being hungry. So we devised a plan. We recruited the waitress who agreed to bring all of the food that the girls' tables didn't eat to our table before she took it back to the kitchen. And so after about 20 minutes, our table was piled with half-eaten pizzas and leftover plates and slightly melted ice cream desserts. And then we ate and were full, and there was still an abundance left over. On Mark 6, the crowds left full with an abundance too. Of course, for them, the key was not in agreement with the waitress. The key for them was that they were in the presence of Jesus. And their satisfaction took on a whole new dimension. Now this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. In fact, this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. The story shows us crowds who were hungry. The story makes clear that they weren't just physically hungry. They were spiritually hungry. They've come to Jesus who is their good shepherd. And this story shows us that Jesus has compassion on his sheep. It's because of his compassion that he feeds them food that will satisfy. And my goal this morning is to look at both of these points. I want to look at Jesus' compassion, and then I want to look at his food, which satisfies. So let's start by looking at Jesus' compassion. We see it right as the story starts. The story begins with the 12 return and report on all that they'd done and taught on their missionary journey. If you've ever been on a a missions trip before, you know that uh, it can be physically exhausting as well as spiritually exhausting. And after a week of of serving, often what you need is to come together and rest, as well as time to debrief, to share stories of what you've done and what, what you've heard and all that's happened together. But verse 31 tells us that when the disciples came back, So many people were coming and going and trying to see Jesus and bringing their cousin to be healed that they can't even eat a sustained meal together. So Jesus' heart of compassion is evident in his gracious words in verse 31. He himself may may be able to continue to heal and, and minister and wake up early in the morning and go from village to village, but when he looks at his disciples, he says, come away by yourselves. Let's go to a desolate place and rest. I looked up the word compassion this week in Merriam-Webster's dictionary. And the dictionary defines compassion this way. It says, compassion is a consciousness or an awareness of another person's distress. Their weariness, their weakness, their suffering. Along with the desire to alleviate that distress. It's a great definition of compassion, an awareness of someone's distress and a desire to alleviate it. And when we turn to the scriptures, that is exactly how God's heart for his people is described. A thorough understanding of our weakness and our suffering and his desire to care for us accordingly. 
I think of Psalm 103. Psalm 103 describes the Lord's mercy not to deal with us as our sins deserve, but to remove our transgressions from us. And after talking about that, it goes on and reads this way. He says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. You see that awareness of our weakness and his desire to meet us where we are. Or I think of Hebrews chapter 4, 15 to 16, which encourages us, draw near to Christ to receive mercy and grace to help because Jesus is a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. We can multiply these passages of the heart of God's compassion. But here in Mark 6, this offer to come away with him to a desolate place and to rest is an offer that springs from this very heart of compassion. His awareness of their need and his desire and willingness to meet that need. But of course, Jesus, in his sovereignty, knows that his disciples also have a lesson to learn in addition to having their weariness met. And they will learn it as he shows compassion to a second group of people. Jesus and his disciples get on a boat. They float out into the Sea of Galilee heading up the coast. But we've already been told that Jesus and his disciples can't even eat a meal without people interrupting him. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that Jesus and his disciples can't slip away on a boat without being seen. They're seen and the word starts to spread and people come together in a large group, and they follow this boat up the coast. You know, Jesus and his disciples are not rowing, you know, like uh, Olympic rowers. They're floating up the coast, and the people are just following up there so that it says they actually get to the spot before the boat does, and as the boat comes to shore, there's the whole crowd waiting for them. And you can probably imagine what the disciples are thinking. If you've ever had your grandkids over for a week and you've uh, played with them in all of their energy for five straight days, you have that tired ache from the flurry of activity and you send them home and collapse in your recliner and then the neighbor knocks on the door and wants your ear for an hour about all the neighborhood gossip. Or, or maybe you're a, a mother and you have young kids and finally after a morning of chaos you get them all to settle into a nap at the same time and you sit down for a few moments peace when a couple of dogs on their walk have a barking competition right outside the window and wake the three-year-old and you know what we're thinking you're thinking you've got to be kidding me and that has to be what the disciples are thinking here too so they look over at Jesus to see what he's going to do but his expression is completely different because his heart is driven by a completely different motivation. Verse 34 says that when they went to shore, he saw the crowd, and rather than seeing them as overbearing annoyances who are messing with his plan and won't leave him alone, instead he had compassion on them because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Rather than thinking about how these people were impacting him, Jesus was thinking about how he could love and serve them. And that's really the crux of compassion. Will we think about how others are impacting us, or will we think about how we can love and serve them? You know, this is the heart of God again in his son Jesus. He had sympathy for the needs and distresses of these people and a desire to meet their need. Like a sheep without a shepherd, they were leaderless, without guidance. 
or direction. They were spiritually malnourished. They were left unfed by the ones who were supposed to teach them and feed them. But Jesus is what they need because he is the good shepherd who gives his life for his sheep, who makes them lie down by still waters and in green pastures and prepares for them a table such that their cup overflows and goodness and mercy follows them all the days of their lives. It's curious here, Mark is the only one that specifically notes that Jesus told the people to sit down on green grass. And I wonder if Peter was thinking of Psalm 23 when he mentioned that detail. That Jesus commanded the people, that is, Jesus led the people or guided the people to sit down in green grass that he might feed them. That's Psalm 23, and that's who Jesus is, the good shepherd. And Jesus does all of this out of his heart of compassion. And the good news for us is that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that means that his heart of compassion for his people is still the same. And that means that Jesus is still looking at each one of us as his people and knowing our needs. He has sympathy for us. He has an understanding and a concern for our weaknesses. He has a sympathy for our physical weariness. He has sympathy for our bodies of dust. He has an understanding of our moral weakness and the temptations of our remaining sin. He has an understanding and concern for our spiritual weakness and our inconsistent pursuit of him. He has sympathy for us as we suffer in this broken world. After all, when we see the Lord, the Lord looks at his people and sees us in all of our weakness and sinfulness. And these things do not raise in him exasperation or revulsion, but compassion. This is the God who says in Hosea eleven eight, How can I give you up, O Ephraim, this sinful people? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. And that compassion comes with a desire to meet our need. Not necessarily the way we want him to meet our need, with a nap or a peaceful rest or making everything in life go just the way we want it to go. That's not necessarily the way he meets our needs, but as he, the good shepherd, knows is best. And so the encouragement, the comfort for us this morning is to remember in whatever weakness or distress you find yourself, the heart of compassion that motivated our Savior to meet these crowds and that motivates him to draw near to us and meet us in our weakness and distress as well. But if I could pause and and linger on this note of compassion, maybe we could apply this to our hearts a step further. Because shouldn't we be thinking, if this is the way God shows compassion on us, shouldn't we be striving to display the same compassion to those around us? And yet our hearts so instinctively react, don't they? By evaluating everything and everyone based on how they impact me. I mean, we struggle to have this kind of compassion even with those that we love the most, even with our own children whom we love so dearly. We lose our tempers at them for whining when they're tired or for fighting when they're upset. And yet Jesus looks at these crowds of sweaty people who keep interrupting everything he's doing And he loves them and has compassion on them. What might it look like 
if we were to respond with that same heart of compassion for those who are weak, for those who are needy, for those who are difficult to get along with, for those who we help but need help again and again, for those who don't seem to acknowledge our efforts for them, for those who seem to act with short-sighted foolishness? What would it look like for us to help them, not just from a sense of duty, but out of a genuine heart of compassion? And what about those caught in sin because they don't know Jesus? Do we have room in our hearts for true and genuine compassion for them? Have we given consistent thought and attention and desire and prayer for those who don't know Christ? J.C. Ryle doesn't hold back. He says, the man who cares nothing for the souls of other people is not like Jesus. So may we be like Christ. May we reflect his heart of compassion for those around us. Well, this is Jesus' heart of compassion. But I want to turn secondly now to see the food that Jesus gives to satisfy the hunger of these needy people. And it all starts right here in verses 34 to 35. At this point, the people do not have an issue with physical hunger. They didn't come to Jesus looking for bread. They didn't say, well, I know, let's leave our towns and villages and hike up the coast because maybe Jesus will feed us some bread. That wasn't their motivation at all. They came to Jesus because he has the words of life, because his teaching satisfies their spiritual hunger in a way that none of the scribes or the Pharisees could. Several years ago, St. Stephen's Church in New Holland was a member of the UCC denomination. But through a connection that they had, they asked Pastor Tim Whitmer to fill their pulpit while they didn't have a pastor. And I remember Dr. Whitmer, who's a, a pastor in the PCA, relating to me how one of the elders at St. Stephen's told him a few months into his preaching that in his biblical sermons, he tasted real spiritual food for the first time in his life. And he suddenly realized what had been missing for so many years, and he was starving. What a great expression for those who hear biblical truth for the first time. And that's what the crowds are keenly aware of when they hear Jesus, and they long for more, and so Jesus feeds them, and he feeds them abundantly. You see the first thing Jesus does, it says he saw that they were sheep without a shepherd, and so he began to teach them, and he taught them many things, and he kept teaching them many things until it grew late in the day. That is the shepherd who is feeding the spiritually hungry with abundant food to satisfy But of course, he taught them until it grew late in the day, and it's at this point that the disciples, perhaps still a little tired and grumpy, step in with an eminently practical suggestion. I I sort of imagine the disciples as those who say, you know, Jesus is great with teaching, he's great with people, but he's not great with the details. He needs us as the administrative team to step in and think of the things that he forgets when he's teaching. And so they come up to Jesus and say, Jesus, this is a desolate place. There's no fast food. There's not even a Walmart around here. We need to send the people to go and buy themselves something to eat. Jesus has another lesson for his disciples and for the crowds. So he looks the disciples in the eye and he says, don't send them away. You feed them. And I love that statement. It's my favorite statement of this passage. You feed them. 
Now, I don't know what Jesus' sense of humor was like. I don't know if the disciples sort of paused for a second waiting for the punchline after that comment. I don't know if they gave one of those laughs as if they thought it was a joke and then sort of that awkward pause when they realize it's not. I don't know exactly how it went down, but at some point they realize Jesus is serious and so they begin to protest, Jesus, we probably couldn't even find food for 5,000 families in the villages around us. And even if we could, it would cost us 200 denarii. Remember, a denarii is a day's wage, so we're talking two-thirds of an annual salary for a, a laborer here. And they're thinking, this is totally impossible. But Jesus, Jesus has a dual lesson for his disciples here as he's feeding them. Remember that they had just gone out two by two. This happens right after they've come back from their preaching tour, casting out demons, healing many, seeing some come to repentance. They, the disciples, had been the vehicles of divine blessing throughout Israel. And so what would the first temptation for them be? Wow, look at what we can do. Look at the way people respond to our ministry. And in the face of such success, Jesus now reminds them that they can't actually feed or meet the needs of anyone on their own. And he says, you feed them, and incisively drives home what they cannot do. And we all need to hear this. I need to hear this. I need to hear Jesus say, Chris, you try to feed them. See if you can feed people spiritually. We all need to hear it. You people, meet people's needs. Bring about spiritual change in the people's lives. We can't do that. There's no counseling method. There's no prescription medication. There's no no meal train. There's no way that we can meet what people really need. Only God can do that. Only his divine power at work through his Holy Spirit can bring comfort and repentance and faith and meet any real need in someone's life. And so the disciples are brought up short to remember what they can't do. But Jesus is also reminding them of what they can do. Because I think Jesus is also reminding them here in this story that in dependence upon him, they can actually feed people. Because what does Jesus do? He has the people sit down in groups on the grass. He blesses the bread. He breaks it. And then he gives it to the disciples so that the disciples can feed the people. And so, yes, they can feed people in dependence upon Jesus. And isn't this actually exactly the pattern for all the ministry the disciples and and all of God's people are called to? Think of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. God has made us ambassadors for Christ. He makes his appeal through us. And so even while we need the reminder that we can't feed people or meet their needs on our own, we also need the reminder that God has given us his word and his spirit and called us to feed people by bringing them his word and his spirit and meeting their needs. And so we have this blessing that we are to give our lives to distributing his truth with his compassion, marveling at his power which works through us for the care of his people. It's a beautiful reminder. So Jesus puts this plan into action here. After blessing and breaking the bread, he passes it out along with the fish, and the people eat and are satisfied. And that is always what happens when people come to Jesus. They eat and they are satisfied. And not only that, but he always feeds with such an overflowing abundance that there are basket upon basket upon basketful remaining. 
I think this is how God describes his blessings all throughout Scripture. I think of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, which declares that in Christ he has given us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. Or I think of, uh, I think of Ephesians 1, where Paul repeatedly uses words of abundance, like, in Christ we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he prays that we might know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. And that we might know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those who believe. And we could go on multiplying the way the New Testament talks about the abundance that we are fed through Jesus Christ. Because that is how the good shepherd feeds his people. With satisfying abundance. But the most important lesson, the most important lesson that we can't miss is that the real food that satisfies here is not the bread. It's not even the teaching in and of itself. The real food that satisfies is Jesus himself. And you see that Jesus is drawing people to himself and drawing their attention to who he is. And he does it by looking to the past, the present, and the future. And I want to end by just looking at how thoroughly Jesus draws people to himself. He draws people to himself and to who he is through a parallel with the past. This story looks back to the way the Lord fed his people in the wilderness with manna and the way God satisfied his hungry people. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses, the one who had been the vehicle, the intermediary of this manna, promised that one day the Lord would raise up another prophet like me to speak my words to my people. Now, 1,500 years later, the text emphasizes three times that this happened in a desolate place. Now, the Greek word for desolate is the same word for wilderness or desert. And so Jesus is in the wilderness, the desert, the desolate place, feeding his hungry people with miraculous food. And it's no wonder that in John 6, the parallel passage of this story, the people respond by saying, this must be the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus is explicitly drawing this parallel with Moses and manna in the desert, pointing out who he is, the one God had promised to send, and the one the people were to listen to for the words of life. Jesus also drew attention to who he was in the present. He told the people explicitly that he, not miraculous bread, could satisfy them. In John's account of this story, the crowds came looking for Jesus on the day after this meal. But when they find them, Jesus looks at them and says, Truly, truly, I tell you, you're seeking me because you ate your fill of loaves. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And they ask him, well, how do we do that? And, and Jesus goes on to say, I am the living bread who came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Whoever feeds on my flesh has life indeed. So Jesus is clear that the multiplied bread was not the food that really satisfied. The multiplied bread was just a sign pointing to him and the full satisfaction that he gives through faith in him. 
So Jesus drew a parallel with the past and manna. He told the people in the present to look to him, not the bread. But Jesus was also pointing forward. In this story, he was pointing forward to the bread and the cup, to the table that spread before us this morning. In our story today, what did Jesus do? He blessed the bread, he broke it, and gave it to his disciples. What does he do on the night that he was betrayed? He blessed the bread, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And in both cases, in John's account of this story and on the, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus specifically said, this bread and this cup point us to Christ's body and blood, which we feed on in faith in which we find all that we desire and all that we need because in Christ's body, broken for us, we find the fullness and abundance that overflows to cover our sins, to redeem our lives, to accept us and even adopt us as his sons and daughters, to make us more and more like him until we're received into glory, to make us new creations who will dwell with him in perfect peace and joy forever. That's the fullness that overflows in abundance. And the bread on the Galilean hillside was just pointing to Christ. That is the abundant blessing that he gives us. That is real satisfaction. And it's found in Christ alone. So may we come to him as we come to this table that points us to the full, satisfying meal we have in our Savior. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for Jesus Christ. How we thank you for his body and his blood which he gave for the forgiveness of our sins that we might be redeemed and have new life in him. Father, we pray that as we come to this table this morning, you would use this bread and this cup to draw us to yourself, to point us to yourself, that we might find the Savior who satisfies. We pray it in your name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.